All right. Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. It is good to be with you this morning. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome. Glad that you join us for worship together. And genuinely, if there's anything that we can do... Oh, yeah. (laughs) Anyways, anyways, you got to forget your mask. Anyways, um, so genuinely, if there's anything that we can do to serve you or help you get connected to the community here at River City, uh, we would genuinely love to be able to do that. And so come find me or Becky or somebody else who looks like they know which way's around around here. Uh, we, We really would love to get to know you and help get plugged in. So... Uh, anyway, so we're uh, continuing to walk through our series in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning and looking forward to doing with that with you. But before we dive into that briefly, I just want to take a minute just to say a big thanks to John Lightbody who preached last week uh, for us here. Uh, if you were here, you know John just did an incredible job. He just did a great job of teaching God's word to us, helping us see the truth that's there and Jesus in it. And, and I just wanted to point that out for a minute. One, to just say thanks to John, but also just to highlight River City, we really have a high value for developing people and for developing leaders. And so it's been such an honor to get to invest myself and John and others here at River City, uh, helping people learn how to teach and preach God's word and lead in all kinds of various ways. And, and I trust that my own preaching is, serves you well and helps you grow and that you appreciate it. But it is so good for us as a church, not just to be dependent on one person, right? But for us instead to be dependent on God's word and to be able to create an environment in our community where uh, people aren't just dependent on me or on Aaron or somebody else, but the thing that matters most is God and his word. And so, so Aaron and I, we are glad to be able to equip others, to be able to teach God's word and to be able to lead in our church. And so hopefully you were served well. If you, uh, if you were served well by John last week, I'd encourage you when you see him next time, say thanks. Uh, let him know something that challenged you or encouraged you as a preacher myself. I know that's one of the most encouraging things you can do. And, and uh, John's going to be preaching again later this summer. And so uh, let him know you're excited about that. And so uh, grateful for him and for others to, uh, to serve here at River City. So Anyways, with all that said, uh, if you've been gone or if you're just joining us for the first time, let me catch you up on where we're at in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we'll dive in together here. So 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a, to a church in the Greco-Roman city of Corinth, and Corinth was this incredibly important port city in the Mediterranean, kind of right the the part of Greece that connects the main part of Greece to the little island on the end. And, and so it's this, it is important because it controlled basically east-west trade between Rome and the rest of the Mediterranean. And but, but Corinth wasn't only just incredibly important and wealthy because it was a port city, it was a new city actually. You see, Rome had conquered and destroyed the city about 200 years prior to Paul's writing of this letter. And then they had just left it desolate for about 100 years and decided it was about time after then to restart the city of the people that were loyal to Rome. And so basically, they, they, set, they settled the city of Corinth again with freed slaves and army veterans. And, and so Corinth was this incredibly important city that was also full of people who were seeking to make a life for themselves and a new life and a new name. And it's kind of like the modern-day Silicon Valley, right? You go there and you, you start something new, basically. And tragically, what we see is that and what's happening in the city is that this upwardly mobile kind of mindset, this aspirational mindset, was absolutely all-consuming in the city. Uh, everything in Corinth revolved around climbing the social and economic ladders of the day or, or maintaining your place at the top. And it was the thing that everybody in Corinth absolutely cared the most about. And tragically, what we've seen as we've studied the letter is that, that the church in Corinth was no exception. They... they and what becomes painfully clear as you read is that their highest priority was not God's glory, but it was their own glory. 
And their highest priority was not the advancing of God's word and the gospel, but it was the advancing of their social status and their social stancing in the world around them. And as you can imagine, that was causing all kinds of problems. In fact, as we've read so far throughout the letter, we see is that that's the thing that's really at the root of all the issues that Paul has to address. They're fighting each other, and they're aligning themselves with leaders and attempts to climb the ladder, and, and they're unwilling to call each other out on sin because that, would, that, again, is not a way up the ladder in Corinth. You see, while they may have believed the message of the gospel, what we see throughout this letter is that their lives and their community were not being ongoingly formed by the message of the gospel. Instead, what you see is that their, their lives and their community, they're being formed of the values and the ethos of their surrounding culture. And it was not only destroying their own community, it was, it was ruining their witness to the watching world. And nowhere is that more overtly obvious than the way the Corinthian believers viewed and practiced sexuality. You see, what happens is you and I, we're tempted to look at the world around us and think that, well, we really have these really highly unique situations when it comes to uh, understanding or wrestling with sexuality in our own culture. And, and that's really because uh, we don't know what was going on 2,000 years ago in Corinth, right? There is nothing new under the sun, right? This is not new, the things that we wrestle with in our own culture. You see, Corinth was known for rampant sexual immorality and for confusion and deception. And Corinthian culture was one where anything goes, right? The mantra was, do what you want, right? Do what feels good. Do what you want. Don't let anybody stop you. You see, the reality is that much like Corinth, our own culture as well, we fundamentally operate out of the, this foundational principle that you should always follow your own desires, that, the, that you should always follow your own desires, and that really the only way to actually be happy and fulfilled is to act on and to live in accordance with those desires, and that you should always be completely free and unhindered from doing just that. And yet, what we see throughout the Bible, and specifically, again, in our passage this morning, is that, that real happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction, life, it's never found by becoming a slave to our own bodily desires. Instead, it's found by submitting to God's good design for our bodies and for our sexuality. And instead, instead of living to gratify ourselves, it's found in living to glorify God. And so the invitation as we study God's word this morning is to ask ourselves, when it comes to how we view and practice sexuality, are we going to be formed by the culture around us which is screaming at every turn to gratify yourself? Or instead, will we be transformed by the good news of the gospel which both calls us and empowers us to actually live for God's glory instead of our own self-gratification and and the, the key here really this morning is that that's actually the way to real life. That's actually the way to joy. That's actually the way to fulfillment. It's countercultural. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But it does for God and it does for us. And so let's, let's pray. To that end, let's pray as we study. God, we uh, come to you this morning. And uh, God, just the honest truth is that we really need you. God, we, we always need you. Every morning when we gather, we need you. But especially so this morning. God, what your word has to teach and what you have to say about your design for, for our sexuality and how we use our bodies, uh, God, it, it, it flies in the face of everything our culture applauds and celebrates. And so, God, our world sees your ways as foolishness. And if we're honest, so often we are tempted to do the same. And so, God, we just humbly ask this morning that you, by your spirit, would help us to see God, the, the seemingly foolishness of your ways as the real wisdom it really is. 
God, and help us to see it as life and joy. Help us to see it as the way to real life so that we might be willing to gladly submit ourselves to it and to you. And so, God, we can't do any of that on our own. God, I need you. We need you. We are so dependent on you. And so we ask that you'd meet us as we study your word this morning. Amen. Amen. Let me grab another drink here and we'll lock and load. All right. So a couple quick things just before we dive into our passage this morning. Uh, Number one, I just want to be honest. We are going to be talking about some really hard things. And the reality is that the reason why they are so hard for us is because they, they, uh, they stand in utter contrast to, to the way our world thinks and acts and lives and celebrates and applauds. And, and so it's really hard, and I just want to acknowledge that. These are not simple and easy things. And number two, I, as well, I want just to, just, just to realize that many of you, if not all of you, when I, when I bring up the, uh, the idea of sexuality or any of that stuff, it's, a, it's an issue that hits really close to home. As soon as I mention that phrase, things that you are wrestling with or that you have been wrestling with or people, real, real family and friends, people with real names and real situations, they come to mind. And I just need you to know the same is true for me. I don't approach this issue from some kind of distance with some kind of ambiguity no, it's something that affects all of us, me included. That leads us to the third thing I want to just, before we begin. Every single one of us, every one of us without exception, is tempted to think and act in ways that are at odds with God's good design for our sexuality. Every one of us. And yet at the same time, we are all so eager to point out the flaws and the sin of others and ignore it in ourselves. And that has caused all kinds of harm, not only to other people, but also to God's reputation. And so as we study this morning, I want to encourage us, we must be exceedingly careful, exceedingly careful, not to first think as we read God's word about what it might have to say to somebody else or about somebody else, but what it actually has to say to us, how it actually confronts us, how it affects us. Because otherwise what's going to happen is we're just going to be full of pridefulness and self-righteousness, which is just sin from the pit of hell itself. And instead, like God, we want to be characterized by a graciousness and a humility and a compassion. And so I hope as we study this morning, that's what you, you sense from me as your pastor. Not a sense of pridefulness or arrogance, but one of humility and grace and compassion as we study this stuff. <clears throat> but as well, what I hope that you hear from me is also a sense of clarity and urgency You see, because what the Bible has to say about how we use our bodies and our sexuality is not only overtly clear, it is incredibly urgent. We'll see as we read that like eternity is on the line. It matters immensely. And so I hope that you hear in me a tone of a posture of graciousness and humility, but also one of urgency and clarity. And lastly, before we just jump in, I know that there are kids with us this morning. Many of you have little kids, and you might be like, I don't know, where are we about to go with any of this, right? Um, I just want you to know, I have little kids myself, okay? And so we're going to talk about stuff in a way that is able for anybody to hear, but we're going to use language that's in the Bible to do it. Um, And so uh, if there's at any point, as parents, if you feel the need to duck out or whatever it might be, I trust you with that, but hopefully you'll know this will be a safe place to be able to begin some conversations about that stuff. And I guess actually, really lastly, I know we got a long, I'll just say this, buckle up, right? Let's get, we got a lot to cover this morning, okay? And I just want to say as well, if, there, if there's anything that we talk about this morning that you have questions about or that you want to process, I just want to encourage you, like, come, come ask me about that stuff. 
I'm absolutely willing to talk about that more with you, to help you process through any of that stuff, help point you to helpful resources. And so come find me. Uh, I would genuinely love to be able to talk with you about it. So, All right, we're in Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9 this morning. It begins this way. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, or slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, you say, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. For do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? No, never. For do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one who was one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Therefore flee from sexual immorality. All other sin a person commits outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. For do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? For you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, our passage is full of the language of sexual immorality this morning, and we are absolutely going to get to that. But I think before we dive into what God's Word is prohibiting, I think it's important that we actually start with the reality that that God's Word does not have a primarily negative view of sex. It doesn't describe sex as gross or evil or merely as just some necessary thing for procreation. Instead, the Bible actually presents uh, sexual intimacy as like a good gift that God gives us to be enjoyed and to be celebrated Uh, Let me just give you a few examples. Song of Solomon, it's a whole, it's a book, it's literally a duet between two lovers. It begins this way, it says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Take me away with you, let's hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. The the PG version of Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18 and 19, it says, may you rejoice always in the wife of your youth. May her body satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. We get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll be in the next couple of weeks, right? And the Bible specifically calls husbands and wives not to withhold sexual intimacy from each other. Instead, it encourages them to gladly and generously give themselves to one another. You see, people often think that the Bible has this like really low view of sex and that God should just kind of loosen up and realize how great it is. And the reality is that's, that's the opposite is true. And you see, the Bible has this extremely high view of sex. God created it. He created the desire for it and the pleasure that's in it and the unity that comes from it and the joy that it brings. God is pro-sex. You see, but while that is absolutely true, that God designed it to be a good gift for us to enjoy, that's not the ultimate purpose for it. 
And it's so important that we see that. You see, and that's where our, God's word begins to confront the way that we think about and engage in sexual activity. See, in the Corinthian culture, much like our own, we kind of operate out of this fundamental uh, the belief that, that really our, that our sexuality is ultimately about us. That its ultimate goal is for our pleasure and our joy and, and our happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction and fulfillment. And that therefore we should be free to practice it however we see it meets those needs best. However we want to do it. As long, if we're in our culture, the caveat, the only caveats, as long as you're not hurting somebody else. In Corinth, there were no caveats. You see, but what we see in our passage this morning is that the way that we use our bodies, the way that we practice our sexuality, isn't ultimately about us. It's actually ultimately about God. Verse 12 and 13, what Paul's doing is he's kind of rebuffing some of the kind of Corinthian slogans of the day, the things that, that kind of summed up the ethos of Corinthian culture when it comes to sexuality, right? He says, uh, and sadly, it's actually an ethos the church has just kind of full-on adopted, right? He says, you say, I have the right to do anything. He says it twice, right? He says, food for the stomach, stomach for the food, right? It's like the Corinthian catchphrases when it comes to sexuality, right? In other words, what they're saying is like, you know what, I'm going to do what I want with my body. Nobody can tell me what I should be doing or not. It's mine. I'll do what I want with it. Additionally, it's just like, just like food's made for the stomach and vice versa. So obviously the body's made for sexual activity, just what it's for. So use it for what it's for. No guards. See, at the end of verse 14 or verse 13, Paul tells them, he says, no. No, guys. Your body was not made for sexual immorality. Instead, he says, the body is made for the Lord. It's for the Lord. And also the Lord's for the body. Do you see that? Our bodies ultimately aren't about us. They're not ultimately for fulfilling our own pleasures and desires. Ultimately, our bodies are about glorifying God. Ultimately, they're for him. They're about him. And so they're not for fulfilling our own desires, but for fulfilling his desires for us and for the world. David Platt, he writes it like this. He says, the, like the Corinthian believers, we are swimming in a culture, a cultural ocean that cries out with every wave, gratify yourself. But what if we haven't ultimately been created for self-gratification? What if instead we've actually been created for God-glorification? And even better, what if God-glorification is actually the way to experience the best life of all? You see, you and I, in our world, we tend to see sex as an end. You see, but what we see in our pastors this morning is that sex is not an end. It is merely a means to an end. And then the end is not our personal things. You see, God created sex as a means, as a way of pointing to a greater reality, as a way of revealing something about him and the gospel to the world. You see, from the beginning of the Bible, it's so clear that the whole point of creation the whole point of it is to reflect something about God and in so doing, reveal his glory and his splendor. And this is especially true of humanity. We read in Genesis 1 that humanity is uniquely, distinctly, it says, made in the image of God, which doesn't mean that we physically look like God because God is a spirit, but instead it means that unlike any other part of creation, that we are uniquely able to know God and to reflect his nature and character. And so the way that we use the bodies that he made for us is inherently a part of our very identity and purpose as being God's image-bearing representatives. 
the way we use our bodies is intrinsically linked with our identity and purpose as being God's image bearers. And so yes, sex is a good gift that is pleasurable and joyful, but sex is not ultimately about those things and it's not ultimately about you. It's ultimately a one of the ways that we get to reflect and reveal the very nature of God and glorify him. And it's because that's the purpose for sex. It's because that is the ultimate reason behind it, that we're not free to use it any way we want to, that there are boundaries that God sets up for it. And that brings us to how this passage talks about sexual immorality. You see, the word that's translated there is sexual immorality. A bunch of times in our passage, it's the Greek word porneia. It's a, it's a general term that the Bible uses throughout the New Testament to basically, it's kind of a junk drawer term that refers to any and all sexual activity outside of the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman. Again, it's, it refers to any and all sexual activity that happens outside of the confines of a marriage between one man and one woman. You see, people try to do all kinds of technical gymnastics to get around the specific examples of sexual immorality that the Bible gives, trying to basically argue that God's not really actually opposed to whatever it is that they're doing or want to do. But I just, I just need to shoot straight with you guys. There are zero places in all of the Bible where God affirms or celebrates in any way any kind of sexual activity that happens outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. It never happens. God never affirms it ever in his word. It's never celebrated. It is never condoned. You see, again, that's not because God is anti-sex. Because God is pro-God. He's pro-him, and he realizes that he designed our bodies and our sexuality ultimately as a way that we reflect and glorify him. And so the way that we use it and the way that we use our bodies is ultimately about him. That's why Genesis 1, it, again, it doesn't just tell us that we're made in God's image. It goes on in chapter 2, and it says, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. We see that one flesh language again here in our passage, Right? There is a unity that is there that reflects something about God. You see, sex is not just a physical thing. Sex is, there is a spiritual aspect to our sexuality that goes far beyond just a physical act itself. You see, what God is saying is that his design for our sexuality is that in the physical union of a husband and a wife who have completely, solely given themselves to one another, there is a kind of equality, and yet there is also a diversity in that, right? And there's a, because of that, there's a picture of this incredible unity and equality and diversity that exists in the Godhead himself. You see, God made our sexuality, the very way that he designed it, is ultimately about revealing something about him. And so he invented it, he knows what it's for, but also he knows how it works best. See, the problem is that we're kind of like arrogant four-year-olds who really want to run out into traffic after the ball, thinking it's what we need most. And we think our dad, who's telling us not to run into traffic, is just an idiot. You see, it's like the height of arrogance. We tell God, you don't know what's best for me. You don't know how I should use my body. You don't know what it's best for. And we live in a culture that celebrates that kind of arrogance and, and that elevates it and exalts it as the thing that's right and good and, and the best thing that encourages us at every turn to speak and live arrogantly towards God. And meanwhile, we have God as a loving father who sees us running out into traffic and says, don't do it. 
You see, when we use sex outside of the bounds God's designed it for, it always consumes and it always destroys and it always harms. Always. Our world is rife with the endless damage of sexual sin across the gamut. You see it all over the place. Most of all, God says in 9 and 11, that it leads us to miss the kingdom altogether. It leads us to miss God and to miss the abundant life that he has for us under his good leadership and authority. In the 1960s, there was a guy named George Leonard. He was a powerful uh, editor at a magazine, a popular magazine, and he used his position to promote the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s. And later, decades later, he, he actually wrote a book called The End of Sex, and in it he expresses this wildly different opinion than he promoted during the 60s and 70s. He writes this, he says, The sexual revolution has not done what its proponents claimed it was doing. It has not enhanced sex. Instead, it has only cheapened love. I was a proponent of the sexual liberation, but now I see that sex has rules and boundaries, and unless you play by the boundaries, then sex can create a depth of loneliness like nothing else can. The the honest truth of reality just bears that out. You see, what Leonard found is the reality is that just like the goldfish that tries to liberate itself from the confines of the tank that it's in, doesn't find life and freedom, but just death. It happens for us too. When we try to liberate our sexuality from God's good design for it, it doesn't lead to life. It doesn't lead to happiness. It doesn't actually fulfill. It doesn't really satisfy. It just endlessly leaves you longing and empty. It just leads to death. And so instead of seeing sex as a good gift to be used ultimately to worship God with, we see sex as a thing, as the end itself. We worship sex itself. We believe it's the one thing we must have if we desire it, and it becomes this overwhelming, controlling influence on our lives. We actually end up turning it into a God itself, and we reject God's good design for our sexuality, and we make it about us and about our pleasure and about our fulfillment. And so in rejecting God's ways, we're actually rejecting God himself. We're throning ourselves as God and as king, and it always leads to death, every time. And I need you to hear this this morning. All of us, all of us do this. We just do it in different ways. Ever since Adam and Eve created sin in the garden, every single person has inherited a sinful heart with a bent towards sexual sin. And all of us, either once or through, at many times, have lived and thought and acted in opposition to God's view of sex. All of us have done it. David Platt, he writes it this way, we are all personally, biologically, culturally, and spiritually predisposed towards sexual sin. Some of us are simply predisposed in ways that are more culturally acceptable. Unfortunately, in the church, we have an obvious tendency to isolate certain segments of sinners who struggle with various particular sorts of sexual temptation. We look at adulterers as an unfaithful lot that we deserve to be ignored and left alone. We perceive gay and lesbian neighbors as enemies in a cultural conspiracy to take over the country. We view porn addicts as perverts and prostitutes as projects and transsexuals as people who will pollute us if we get too close to them. But we see people as different than us and in some cases dangerous to us, but the truth is, 
The truth is that they are all just like us, and we are all just like them. For every single one of us is seeking a way that seems right to us. Maybe you haven't practiced sexual immorality with your hands, but we have all lusted after others in our hearts. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, it's the same. It's not a little bit different. It's not with asterisks. It's the same, he says. It's just the same. Maybe you waited to have sex until you were married, but you did it for selfish or self-righteous reasons. And you just think, wow, it's going to make my own sex life better. Or, or really, you're just looking down on other people, and you're just like, man, I just don't ever want to be like those shameful idiots. You see, and it's just pride and arrogance, and it's not the gospel. You see, the reality is the truth is that there was only one person who was ever completely sexually pure, and his name is Jesus. And I need you to hear this. You are not him. So all of us, all of us fail to live up to God's good standards and his design for our sexuality. None of us are spotless. None of us meet the standard, myself included. I'll never forget the day uh, where I got a phone call from, uh, from Hannah's brother. In high school, he had come out to the family as gay, and, and at one point, just randomly, he called us up, and he, he and his boyfriend at the time, they, they wanted to know what we thought that the Bible said about homosexuality, and they, they wanted to know what, what we thought it said, and I just remember being wildly caught off guard, and I'm fumbling over my words. It was a call I got literally out of the blue, and I remember fumbling over words, but basically saying that I think it's clear that the Bible lays out that our sexuality and sex is is meant to be used. It's confined to a marriage between a man and a woman. And it wasn't because of this conversation, but within the next year, Zach had basically cut off all ties with everyone in our extended family. And, and Han and I, we haven't heard from him in over seven years. And I have thought about that conversation a lot over the years. And what I regret so deeply is not what I said, but what I didn't say. I wish so badly that what I would have said, that what I would have done is to confess my own sexual sin to my brother and to acknowledge my own sin in front of him and the ways that I'm tempted to think and act sexually that are outside of God's good design for our sexuality. And I wish what I would have said is that you and I are not different. We struggle in different ways, but you and I are the same. We both look to other things than Jesus to satisfy and give life and fulfill. And we are both tempted to see sex as about us and for us. And we have both failed to live out God's good design for it. I would give anything to be able to say those things to him. And I, I have no idea if that would affect him in any way, but I know that it would be right. And I know that it's true. And I know it would have honored a God whose image he is made in. You see, the reality is that in the end, every single one of us 
is a sexual sinner who needs a savior and who needs to repent and to turn from the ways that we think and act and and live outside of God's good design for our sexuality. And so we all need to repent and turn from it. Sam Alberry, he writes this, he says, repentance is about turning around and facing a new direction. And all of us, he says, are facing the wrong way. There is not a different message for the heterosexual or homosexual people. All of us need to reorient our lives around Jesus. And around the gospel, and for all of us, there will be things that we will need to turn around on that feel fundamental to who we are. And yet Jesus' words in Matthew 16, they, he says to disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You see, repentance is a costly call. It's an invitation that we might turn from all the things we think fulfill and think satisfy and think give life in order that we might live out an identity that Jesus himself has bought and made for us. You see, but we're not just all sexual sinners who need to repent. We're sexual sinners who need to actually believe the truth of the gospel. See, the good news of the gospel is that God so loves sexual sinners like you and me and the rest of our world that he sent his son to pay the price for our sin. Verse 20, Paul says, says that you are not your own because you were bought with a price. That's the language of, of rescue. It's the language of redemption. The price we see that was paid for our redemption and our freedom from slavery to sin was the blood of Jesus himself. First Peter chapter 1 and verses 18 and 19, he says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life that was handed down to you. with the precious blood of Jesus. The spotless lamb who himself was without blemish or defect. You see, you and I were slaves to sin, blind to the reality of our slavery in the first place. We have a Stockholm syndrome, syndrome with sin as our captor. And so before we even knew we needed a rescue, Jesus came to rescue and liberate and redeem. And he paid the price to set us free, that we might be free from being slaves to our own desires. You see, and it's only when you see what Jesus has done for you, it's only when you see how much it costs that you'll be motivated instead to no longer live, to gratify yourself, but to glorify him even when it's hard and even when it costs. J.D. Greer, he writes this, what we crave in sex is really what we find in Jesus. There's only one kiss that, and one set of arms that can really fulfill our heart's needs, and he is the ultimate thing. He is the intimacy our soul craves, and when you find him, then you have the power to say no to and the other things. Famous Puritan preacher Thomas Chalmers, he called this the expulsive power of a new affection. He writes this, neither you nor anyone else can dispossess the heart of an old affection. The heart is not so constituted. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. 
And if that new affection be the love of God, then it shall, then it shall draw the heart of the sinner towards him. You see, he's saying the only, the one way that you can overcome the powerful temptation of sin is when you have a more powerful passion than it. When you see the love of Jesus for you, when you see all that it cost. When you see all that he gave for you. And when you see his life lived in purity for you and given for you. What it fills you with is a motivation and a love for him that is willing to lay down anything. It's Jesus' love for us and his redeeming blood-bought price that he paid for you and I. That's the one thing when we set our hearts on it that enables and empowers us to actually live for him and to submit our own desires instead to lay them down so that we might obey him. When you see all he's done for you, when you see his purity for you, what happens is you want to be pure for him and you want to honor him with every part of your life. Parents, as we raise our kids, it is so easy for us to raise our kids and to, to teach them about sexual purity out of guilt and shame and out of missing something out, but that will only lead to sin. That, it never works. The one thing that captivates our hearts is the love of Jesus. And it's only when we treasure him more than anything else that will be motivated to live for him and to lay down our sexuality for him. There is a life there abundantly. And so as we close this morning, motivated by the gospel and motivated by Jesus' love for us, his sacrificial redeeming love for us, I want to just give us a few practical ways that we can be deliberate about choosing to obey God's word about practical things we can do to submit ourselves to it. And the first is simply this. Ask God to help you to see your sexuality as ultimately about him. Ask him to help you to see it as ultimately about his glory and about revealing him. You will never be willing to lay down your own sexuality and your own desires. You will never be willing to do it unless you see ultimately it's about something bigger than yourself. And it's about a, a purpose with eternal value. So ask him to help you see it. Number two, don't pursue sexual intimacy with anyone before you're married. Don't pursue it before you are married with your hands or with your heart. Couples who are dating or engaged, they often ask the question, how far can we go? And I want to encourage you to ask a different question. Ask the question, how can every part of our relationship glorify Jesus and point to him? Ask that question. Ask God that question. Ask him to speak to you in it. Let him correct and shape and mold the way that your relationships look. Number three, don't begin the conversation with sexual temptation. Don't begin the conversation. We see in verse 18, Paul says, instead of embracing our sexual desires, Paul says, flee from them. 
run from them. That language is the language of running away as fast as you can. And so I want to encourage you, don't entertain conversations about sexual immorality in your heart, with your eyes, at work, at home, whatever it might be. Don't rationalize it. Don't minimize it. Don't reason with it. Run from it. Run from it. Sexual sin, it consumes so quickly. It, it consumes our hearts and our lives. It cannot be managed. It must be run from and put to death. You cannot manage it. I cannot manage it. No one can. So run from immorality. And one of the ways to do that, number four, help guard your heart by guarding your eyes. We live in a world where so much of the entertainment we consume, it just normalizes and promotes all kinds of sexual immorality. I just need to say this to you. Don't lie to yourself and tell you that it doesn't affect you. Don't believe the lie that you can just consume all kinds of normalizing sexual immorality and that it doesn't matter, that it, that it doesn't impact you. That's a lie. It affects everyone. And you see, don't lie to yourself about that. Paul says again, verse 13, sin consumes us. It, it masters us, he says. We think we can manage it, but we can't. And so be careful, I urge you. Be careful about what you watch and about what you consume and about what you listen to. And I want to encourage you, Paul says, not to ask the question, what can you do? But he says in verse 12, ask instead, what is beneficial? What do you watch? What do you listen to? What do you consume that, that fuels a love for Jesus or that tears it away? What do you watch and consume and listen to that builds up your love for God and your love for your spouse? And what tears that down? Be exceedingly careful and do not believe the lie that you can manage stuff. Number five. Married couples, if you are married, help each other to glorify God and pursue sexual purity with freedom and frequency in your own sexual relationship. Again, I said this in the beginning, the Bible does not see sex as weird or, or just some, necess you know, some necessity that just you gotta do it to make more people. The Bible sees it as a great and beautiful gift to be enjoyed and treasured. Once you get married, one of the best defenses against sexual immorality is frequency and freedom. And I know there's kids in the room, so I'm not about to divulge deeper about what I'm trying to say with that. But I just want to say this. If you are together regularly, and you can decide with your spouse whatever regularly means, right? But if you are together regularly, and it's not always the same, that is one of the best ways that you can fight for sexual purity and against temptation in your own lives. And so ask each other, what can you do to help each other glorify God and resist temptation by enjoying sexuality inside the bounds that he's given it to you to enjoy? In chapter 7, we'll see in a couple weeks, we're going to talk more about this. Paul writes, he's, he specifically says, don't deprive each other. But instead, he says, come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so if you're married, just want to encourage you, use freedom and frequency to help fight sexual temptation and sin. Married couples, 
as well. I encourage you, you need to learn to have conversations, honest conversations about sexuality in your marriage. From personal experience, I know that that can often be difficult and messy and hard. But it is absolutely necessary and so worth it. And so I encourage you, learn how to have conversations about that, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it feels messy. Learn to have conversations with grace and humility towards one another, knowing that you're trying to honor God and honor your spouse and to love God and to love one another with it. And so keep asking each other, not just once, but keep asking each other, how can you serve each other best when it comes to your sexuality in your marriage? How can you keep serving each other? in those ways. And lastly, number seven, and this is more important than any of the other things, you have to nurture your deepest desires. Nurture your deepest desires. C.S. Lewis, he famously wrote this. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half Hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He says, We are far too easily pleased. I want to encourage you this morning don't settle for sex when the Savior of the world is offering himself to you. Don't, don't pursue fulfillment in him. Verse 13, Paul doesn't just say that, the, that our bodies are for the Lord. He says our, the Lord is for our bodies. He's saying Jesus and God is the one thing that really fulfills. He's the one thing that when you keep coming back to him, he gives life and satisfies abundantly. He's the one well that doesn't run dry. And so give yourself to him because he has given himself to you and nurture your desires. Nurture your desire for him. Find out what are the things that help you to love him more. What are the things that stir up your affections for him? And do that stuff. Be intentional about doing those things. Give him your time and your affection and your heart. And all of these things that will help us to pursue obedience to God's word and to glorify him with our bodies, as Paul says, is the whole point of all of it. But here's the thing. If, those, if doing those things are not motivated by the gospel, if they're not motivated by seeing Jesus, the ones who bought you, as the one who gave himself for you to free you from sin, then it will never work. And so that's why we choose to remember and celebrate communion every week. We're reminding ourselves that Jesus' body and his blood, they were broken and shed for us so that he might redeem us and rescue us from slavery to sin. So that we might receive, instead of the penalty for our sexual immorality and our unfaithfulness, we would instead receive the reward for his endless purity. You see, communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It does not save you. It does not change your status or your standing with God. Instead, it's a way for you to remember that Jesus gave himself for you. He poured out everything for you so that you might be empowered to give yourself back to him. Not a little bit, but all of yourself to him. 
And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, if you've put your trust in Jesus' purity for you to make you right with God, if, if his death on your behalf make, is the thing that your hope is found in to make you right with God and to grant you a forgiveness with him, then whenever you're ready during our time of singing, take communion. If you miss the elements on the way in, you can find them on a table in the back, on the left and on the right. And, and you don't have to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if not yet this morning, if you're here you're still figuring out who Jesus is, what it means to follow him. And if you even want to do that in the first place, then I want to encourage you. You are so welcome here. You are so welcome in our church and in this community. But I would encourage you to hold off on taking communion. This communion is about remembering and celebrating all that God has done for us. Instead, if you're, if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out if you even want that, I want to encourage you. Instead of taking communion, receive Jesus himself. Receive the offer of salvation and forgiveness and redemption. Allow him to wash you, to sanctify you, to justify you, to make you new, to clean and beautiful, and to give you a power to live a new life unto him that you cannot have without him. And so as we sing and as we take communion, and I would encourage you, talk with God. Confess your sin to him and ask him to forgive you because he will. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus is the business of forgiving and renewing sexual sinners, and I need you to hear this. What Jesus did for you on the cross completely forgives you. You don't also have to clean yourself up before you can come to him. Jesus renews and he restores and what he has done for you on the cross completely cleanses you. And so trust in him and receive the forgiveness he offers so that you might actually have the power and motivation to live for him. You see, the gospel beckons us to live new lives out of a new identity, ultimately for God's glory. And so to that end, let's pray. God, I know I have gone long this morning, and so I pray humbly, Jesus, that you would cause whatever was from you this morning to sink deeply into our hearts. God, that you might, by your spirit, graciously, God, just gently correct us and to show us where our own lives are out of line with your good design for our sexuality. And God, more than anything, God, empower us to be willing to choose to submit ourselves to your good design. God, knowing that it's not about us, but that it's for your glory, and in the end, it really is for our good. God, both now and forever, as you promise in our pastors that you're going to raise us from the dead, and so our, our bodies, what we do in them matters, and it matters unto you forever. And so God, help us. Empower us as we see the beauty of Jesus and all that he's done for us, as we see his purity laid down for us, that you would be, that we'd be motivated and empowered to live lives of purity unto you, so that the world would see who you are and what you're like and would live for you as well, we pray. Amen.